0: hello and welcome to the range project podcast this is Chris McGrory and I just graduated from Harvard where I was a pitcher on the baseball team and studied psychology and economics And in these conversations, I'm trying to learn from the amazing people around me from school and beyond. I want to really understand what my guests do and how they do it. So that means getting the tips and tricks they use, plus the mental frameworks they have so you and I can apply them in our own lives. And today we have Harvard Business School professor Michael Norton. Professor Norton and I connected a few summers ago when I was able to play a very small role in helping him do research for his next book on the power and importance of rituals in our lives. Now, a little background on Professor Norton. Before his current role, he was a fellow down the road at MIT's Sloan School of Management. And before that, he studied psychology at Williams, followed by a PhD in psychology from Princeton. So that's all to say Mike knows what he's talking about. His research covers a range of topics, but in this one we really tackle rituals in the first half. What they are, where to implement them, and why they help, and his older research on money and happiness in the second half. Does more money make us happier? How should we spend our money to change how we spend our time? What about buying experiences? And a lot more on top of that. Well, he's no doubt an expert that says nothing about how thoughtful and kind Mike is. An entirely different lesson I take from this conversation and from having known him. Before we start, I want to quickly mention the first partnership for the podcast, No Solo Brand. If you've been listening for a little bit or know me, then you know how important mental health is to me. Which is why I'm so excited to team up with No Solo whose mission is to help end the stigma surrounding mental illness through their hats and merch. Now because we already know mental illness does not discriminate, the logo really says nobody goes solo in whatever battle they're fighting. Now while the awareness and support born out of the product is important, No Solo has also committed 20% of profits to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, that's NAMI, who help individuals and families get the support they need. If you want to learn more, give episode 28 with co-founder John Torracinta a listen, and then head to nosolobrand.com and use the code RANGE20. That's all uppercase R-A-N-G-E-2-0 for 20% off your order. I personally love the backwards 7 cap in white, but my brother likes his, the trainer cap in gray. But basically, you can't go wrong. And... It's not like that little freebie gift you got with your last donation that you never wear. And I know you know what I'm talking about. It's top quality stuff that you'll want to rock for what it represents and how it looks. So please check them out. So with all that said, please enjoy this one with Michael Five, Norton. Two, three, do it. Professor Norton, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: I'm pretty good. How are you, Chris?
0: I'm wonderful and i was thinking i want to start with what brought us together first in that rituals and so maybe to guide us into the topic i wanted to ask you do you shower or brush your teeth first and do you really care
1: <laughs> i definitely shower and then brush and i would say i care medium i don't care i wish i didn't care at all but i do kind of care a little bit if i get, you know, switched up. It just a little bit bothers me like for the rest of the day. How about
0: you? I'm the reverse. I have to brush before i shower and i think i'm medium but probably medium to strong on the <laughs> on the caring scale. So maybe you can explain like why the hell i am starting this conversation off with such a weird question.
1: When we started to study ritual, like along like ten years ago now, um, one of the first questions that we had was, "What's the difference between a ritual and a habit?" Because they, there's definitely overlap, uh, but we wanted to kind of figure out what's what. And one of the ways that we did it was we started to think about. Um, Little things that we do every day that are kind of a habit, but maybe something beyond a habit a little bit of there's some emotion or some meaning or something else behind it. And we started to ask people about their days. And one of the things that popped up is how you start your day. And people have totally different morning rituals and routines from each other. But one of the things that just stuck out is that people had the specific order of some things in the morning, they had to come before the other. And so we we wondered whether it mattered to people. So if you're someone who brushes your teeth and showers, and if I said do it the other way, you couldn't care less, that's kind of like a, a habit for you. It's just you got to get stuff done in the morning. You get it done. No problem. Check it off. But if it bothers you, like it bothers us a little bit to move them around and you don't really have any good reason for why it bothers you, you know, like I can't really say why my way is good. Yeah then it's getting, it's not like a ritual, like, you know, people in robes chanting ritual, but it means you care about the order of things. And as soon as you start caring about stuff like that, you're moving down toward the ritual end of the spectrum where how it's done or when it's done or where it's done matters to you. That feeling that it matters beyond just getting stuff done, that is kind of the start of a ritual.
0: So for you, does it have to, does some sort of meaning or meaning making out of the order of events, does that matter in terms of making it a ritual?
1: For sure. I think if you look at people, another thing that comes up a lot is people go for a morning run and um, everyone, well, I guess some people run but <laughs> Most people put running shoes on and some people have a very specific way of putting their shoes on and other people put their shoes on and the people who have a very specific way of putting their shoes on feel like if they put them on that way they'll they'll run better faster longer something it'll be better if they put them on the special way whereas people who just put their shoes on just go for a run and so they're making this meaning out of how they're lacing their shoes that they feel is they're gonna carry forward into something that they do next. So there's, we imbue these really mundane little like toothbrushes and shoelaces, it doesn't get more mundane. Even there, we can imbue them with meaning that starts to like bother us or reward us or whatever it might do. And to me, that's, that's the interesting part of rituals. It, it's, yes, weddings are interesting as a ritual, But the kind that I really find fascinating, and that we worked on together, are the little kind. Often that you know, all of us do in our daily lives.
0: Yeah, and I'll give some background in the introduction. But yes, we—I found some pretty damn weird rituals, and um, they—they are large to small scale. They um, throughout any and all cultures um they definitely don't discriminate and they they come up everywhere. So my question to you is can you build a ritual or does it have to be natural?
1: I think it sort of a combination of of both. So um there are certainly rituals that are handed to us that become meaningful. So a, a wedding is a good example. So I didn't decide that somebody walks down the aisle and there's a person up there saying stuff and they're the only ones facing the audience and everyone else is facing the other. You know, the, these if you break these rituals down, they're very, very, even if it's a casual wedding, it's still extremely ritualistic in what happens. And those we might tweak them a bit, but we kind of just accept them. But that that's how in my culture you do a wedding. And so I'll do it, too. I'll mix it up a little bit because I'm cool. But still, it's basically the same kind of thing. So for sure, rituals that we get, we can imbue with meaning. It does seem sometimes that the ones we, we build ourselves are the ones that are more personally meaningful to us. They come to matter to us a lot. And sometimes people, they just arise naturally. And sometimes people will try to build in a little ritual. For example, in relationships, you can very easily build in a little ritual with your partner. You know, every Tuesday night, we talk about our feelings. Or every Tuesday night, we you know, go out for a beer every Tuesday night. So you have these commitments to each other in a very kind of same day, same time, same thing that end up being really meaningful and important in your relationship.
0: Okay. that's That's good to hear because right now I'm trying to... Obviously, I'm working from home. This is a first job of mine. And I'm in my bedroom where I sleep. And I've lived for most of my life. And so, yeah, I'm trying to create some sort of ritual, kind of like a logging off of the computer at the end of the day saying like, all right, work is done. Now it's like, whatever, family time. So that's good to hear that I can build that. Does the research back that up? And also, I guess, why do creating rituals or kind of going through these motions matter at all? Yeah,
1: that's one of the curious things is like, why would our shoelaces do anything for us? So for work, for sure, among the many changes, obviously, that COVID caused was this idea of um, work from home for more, more people. If you're lucky, really, you got to work from home. But people started coming up with all kinds of routines. So I was actually just writing about a guy who used to bike to work. And he, when he started working from home, obviously, he didn't bike to work. But he felt like his days and nights were just all blending into each other. So he, this is true. He literally would get his bike gear on in the morning, and bike down his hall, which was like seven seven feet. Yeah, like seven feet long. Park the bike, take the bike clothes off, go into his office. End of the day, bike clothes on, back to the bike, seven feet of the other thing. Now, as as you said, on the one hand, why would that do anything? For, I mean, you know, it's it, 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 you, you could say it can't possibly help. For him, it certainly felt like it helped. And we've done research, for example, with um, nurses, very high stress kind of job. Nurses very, very often report rituals at the end of the day, uh, often involving how they take their clothes off, how they bathe, and how they put their next clothes on, their home clothes kind of thing. And it does matter it, whether it should or shouldn't or rational or whatever. When we do these things, they are incredibly common. So many of us do them, and they do seem to change how we feel in the way that we hope they will.
0: And I want to kind of dive into that just for a second on like the connection between rituals and identities. Like at school, as you know very well, there's the bridge that separates the academic campus uh, for undergrads and the athletic campus in Boston and Cambridge. So We say like, all right, you're crossing the river. And that's like a sort of ritual. I would always look to like the Prudential building. And then I would be like, all right, my identity, I'm like transitioning to like baseball player, Chris. Mm -hmm. And then on the walk back, it's like, all right, I'm academic student, Chris. So like there was a little ritual there. So is there good research on the role rituals play in transitions or identities? And maybe like how can people leverage rituals to create these like meaningful transitions.
1: Yeah. It's it's funny because um I also walk I walk to work and I walk across the bridge. And I will when I'm teaching at HBS, I wear like a suit and tie, kind of like a grown-up. So when I walk across the river, I'm a grown-up. And then with when I walk back home, I change into my you know slob clothes. And it, it is, I do it on purpose, actually. So I have the thing over there, that's the business thing. And then I have the me over there, that's, that's the me thing. Uh, and it does feel like, I mean, the, our research also shows it can help, but it certainly feels like it's going to matter. And I do think there's a critical element of identity in ritual. So most of the time in nearly all cultures for children to become grownups, boys and girls to become grownups, there's something that happens. There's a rite of passage. People have have heard the phrase, like cultures through human history, all over the world, everywhere you look, when kids are around, it varies, but you know, it's typically 10, 11, 12, 13, maybe 14, but not usually that much older than that. Something happens. It could be a religious thing. It could be a cultural thing. It could be a party. It could be painful you know there's it, it it runs the gamut of all possible things you could do but the fact that all human groups i shouldn't say all so many human groups seem to do this suggests that we do feel as humans that you can't just change from one thing to another by walking around <laughs> you have to do a thing to become a thing you just graduated from college you did a thing you wore a robe and you stood on a stage my, and people No, clapped. in my
0: backyard, in my <laughs> backyard virtually, but I still put it on. Yeah. In and my backyard felt, with my friends. Totally. Isn't it weird? Yes. And it feels
1: it, it. feels like a thing. When you were done, it felt like a thing that you wore a robe and got a thing. And you got a piece of paper. In the mail. And had Latin on it for no reason. It did. Why does it still have Latin? Nobody knows, but it feels right. Yes. Like, wow, I'm connected to some ancient learning or something like that. <laughs> So we do it just almost um, by, I was going to say by habit, but just kind of, it feels like a thing that we need to do whenever we're switching identities. And people do it later in life too, when they're switching identities. So when people retire, for example, you see them engaging in rituals to leave their work self behind and get onto their, you know, grandparent self or volunteer self or whatever it is they decide to do after they retire.
0: Sure. And you use the word Help. How do you, you define help? And maybe it depends on the different study or different application, but like, how are these rituals like helping if we're going to use that word?
1: There's this word um, that scholars of ritual use that I love, which is um, liminal. Ooh. and it's, Scholars uh, of ritual yeah, use the totally. word liminal. It's fancy old people. That's and, you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, not fancy, but old. But the word, I mean, it means, many things, but one of the meanings of it is sort of in between, like betwixt and between is kind of the liminal space. And sometimes that's a really cool space to be in. And you've, you've probably had moments in your life when you're in between and you're kind of figuring stuff out and you're trying different, literally trying different selves on a little bit, you know, people, when people start college, they often like, am I an athlete person or a music person or a studier person or what? So you kind of bounce around but at some point, it doesn't feel good to bounce around. It feels like you want to be grounded in something and who you are. And it does seem that rituals play that role in moving us from the liminal to kind of the more concrete. Now we can go back and we do go back to the liminal. But then we often use rituals to come back out of that and figure out you know, who we're going to be now.
0: Oh, that's so cool. And that really kind of helps me. Organize how I think about rituals. That that helps a lot in that word liminal, and and it connects to identity. But are there any like like high leverage situations to use rituals in, or maybe that might be too strong? Just anything that's like most exciting to you, where you see whether it's like calming down or in the workplace or grief, just like maybe buy, buy you some time to think about a favorite example?
1: I think what, so what, sometimes when I start, you know, going on and on about rituals, um, people can think that it's, that you start to get stressed. Like, oh my God, this guy's like, I'm already really busy. And this guy's telling me to add 97 rituals. (laughs) You know, I don't have time for this shoelace thing. So the idea I think is, um, typically people bring rituals to bear in moments where they need, they want and need to feel a different way. And that's very different for different people. And it's very different for different people at different times in their lives. So we don't need grieving rituals if we didn't lose anybody. So I guess you could do one, but it wouldn't do anything because there's nothing for it to do but we really really could use them after we lose someone right then and so it's it's often a kind of person and moment specific that you know you could do a pre-performance ritual before you get dressed you know but it's not trying it's to do anything because you weren't that nervous but when you do those before you go on stage the, even if it's the one time in your life you're in a play or something that's when you need that ritual. And in fact, that's when people intuitively, somehow naturally do them. They just, they've never done it before, but they just do stuff in these big moments. And again, it seems to help change the way they're feeling about what's, what's going on in ways that are often beneficial.
0: I love that. So if I want to feel a different way, maybe that's a cue for me to insert insert ritual here. And it'll help. That is so awesome because obviously rituals like mean a lot of different things. So I wasn't really sure how they can be applied. So I appreciate that that deep dive on on how to exactly uh, execute on rituals, but to maybe transition to to navigate this liminal space. Towards a uh, discussion of money as myself and a lot of my peers are now like in our first jobs making money for the first time, to start that conversation, I came across some interesting research on splitting the check, oh. and this literally just happens like it happened last weekend, and as you know, we use venmo like. to to think about like handing cash is ridiculous. So can you tell me, how is Venmo changing our social interactions?
1: So um, Tammy Kim, who's at the University of Virginia, uh, had this idea to study pettiness, which had um, never been studied, which is fascinating because if I say, think of someone you know who's petty, you boom, right away comes to mind, and you really often don't like the person. So it's, yeah. <laughs> we have this, these people in our lives, or, you know, someone's nice and then suddenly they do something petty and we say, oh my God, I had no idea here, you know, that the person was like that. So we know it's an emotionally evocative thing. And Tammy said, we got to study this. And one of the reasons that people don't like pettiness is because um, it's like I thought we were, I thought we had an emotional relationship. And you're acting like um it's a transaction, you know. So if we have, you know, lunch together and it mine was 999 and yours was 1001, you know, and I just well, oh, let's just do 10. The person who says no, you know, I need to count out nine, I only spent 99. I need to count out the 99 cents. I refuse to pe- spend more. That's what banks do. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, we like it when banks do that. We don't want banks to round stuff off. We want them to keep track of dollars and cents. But when your friends do it, they're signaling to you that we're not really that close friends, that in fact, you see this as a transaction instead of as a friendship or partnership or whatever it might be.
0: And in splitting the check, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but did I understand that sometimes giving less then maybe your fair share or like a perfect split. But if it's a whole number makes others like you more, is that right?
1: Yeah. If I, if I owe you $10 and one cent, if I pay you back with $10, you like me more often than if I pay you $10 and one cent. Yeah yeah because the one cent thing is the what is this abasinus <laughs> yeah so even though it's technically accurate and more the signal that these kinds of behaviors send is really can be very upsetting for people actually
0: yeah and i'm i'm thinking i try and be like before i read that i would try and do like oh i just round up to the to the dollar above but maybe I don't need to do that. Maybe I can save the scent and keep my friendship like stable is, is yeah. that right
1: I think um taking turns is good yeah is is what I would say so I'll, you know we have we have the phrases I'll get you next time, yes, uh, but you don't keep track of it. It's just when your friends kind of evens out over time. What start when you start keeping track? you said you'd get me next time well now we're back in bank,
0: <laughs> bank yeah we're
1: mad. One funny thing about check splitting uh by the way is that If you ask people, should you split the check evenly or should each person pay what they, you know, exactly what they bought? It's like 50 50, which means that in any meal of, let's say, three people, there's probably going to be some people who think you should just split it equally and some people who think that you should do it down. So every single time we split the check, there's probably a person there who's mad about how we did it. And yet we have not figured out any way to manage that situation, which is kind of crazy. Now we have like Venmo and it does it automatically a bit, but we, we, that's the best we've come up with in a sense to solve this super common problem.
0: Yeah. And it's funny because I'm thinking I've just adopted this from my dad who's just taught me to like, all right, everybody throws it in, throws in the card and you split it three ways. And that's just how you do it. And what goes around comes around. But that's interesting. That's like, yeah, probably somebody was like, no, like, let's, let's break it down to dollars and cents. But so if this application, if this research isn't like a one application of diving into pettiness, are there other applications and research into, into this domain
1: For sure, I think if you think of the different ways that people can um, behave with their resources toward you, so we all have, we have time. I could give you some time. I could give you some of my time. I could give you some of my money. I could give you some of my emotional energy. You know, in our relationships, and the way that I choose to spend those signals a lot to you about what I think about you. So, um, if For example, we have some research. If you don't want to do something, if someone says, can you come to my wedding? Speaking of a common problem for people in your (laughs) demographic, uh, can you come to my wedding? If you say, I don't have time, you are dead to them. If you say, I don't have the money, that's okay. And the reason is people feel that your time is unlimited. So what do you mean you don't have time to come to my wedding? You can't find a day to come to my wedding. And it's often true. We actually don't have time. You might have kids, who knows what's going on. But when you say you don't have money, that's a finite resource. So I say, oh, maybe Chris doesn't have the money to come to my wedding right now. And I say, it's nothing personal. It's just that he doesn't have the resource. If you say, I don't have the emotional energy to deal with you right now, does not go well, <laughs> right? We're not allowed with people. Part of the deal and friendship is, you know, even if I'm not totally up for it, if you really need emotional support, I gotta, I gotta bring it. You know, if you're really close, you can say, I just can't right now, you know, can we do it tomorrow? But typically you get, you have to, you are expected to expend your emotional points on the people you're closest with. And it's a real problem if you don't, and you can't say, what if I give you $20 instead? doesn't work. You can't substitute the currencies.
0: That's um, that sounds about right to me. So <laughs> I'm glad that the, the research tracks on. And so I would love this to pivot into talking about money and more specifically, um, your awesome book with Liz Dunn, Happy Money. Thank you for writing a short, concise book that is very action, actionable. Um, like 160 pages, there's a lot, of, a lot of power behind the punch. So I first want to ask about this, this number that comes up in a lot of conversations around happiness and money, and that's this like magical seventy five thousand dollar number or around there. Mm-hmm. So, can you please explain that number? Like, does more money make you happier? What is the latest and greatest research say around this this number? Like, oh, anything over seventy five thousand. Yeah.
1: Turned, so the interpretation of that through no fault of the researchers, but the popular interpretation of that has been after you make seventy five roughly seventy five thousand dollars, more money doesn't do anything. And that's not actually what they showed. They showed that after you hit that point, more money does less for you, which is very subtle but very, very different because very what different. it means is if you're making twenty thousand dollars a year and you make another ten thousand, that is can be life changing. You know, you, you may have debt, you may be worried about rent, your family. That ten thousand dollars can dramatically change your life. When you make seventy five thousand dollars and you get an extra ten, it's not that it's not good. You know, no one says no thanks. I'm good at seventy five. But the diff- if you think about it, the difference it makes in your life just isn't as profound as it made when you were making twenty thousand dollars. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't make any difference, right? It's still better. you're still a little happier, a little more relaxed with uh, eighty five than seventy five and that keeps happening all the way out, right? So if you make five hundred thousand dollars, another ten thousand isn't going to do that much for you, but it's still a little tiny, tiny bit happier. And the thing is when people have you know fifty million dollars each of those $10,000 increments, even though it's tiny, tiny, well, when you have like a million of those $10,000 increments, they add up. So, so millionaires actually tend to be happier than the average person, not you know, twice as happy or something like that. But the money keep, does keep adding up just at a much, much lower rate. I think the biggest problem is we don't behave that way. We behave as though every 10,000 is going to be as awesome as the last 10,000, and so we make choices sometimes based on a false belief about how amazing it will be when, in fact, our lives won't be changed that much.
0: Thank you for clearing that up for me, and probably I think that is a popular understanding of the research, so I appreciate that. And you mention millionaires, and I think your research shows that it's they spend time a little differently than other people so they might be happier because of how they're spending their time and not how they're spending their money and i would love to dive into like how you would recommend i understand the relationship between time and money
1: when we survey um, folks across the income spectrum on how they spend their time you can do it for yourself so you could do it's called the day reconstruction method which means it's a method for reconstructing your day which means I say over the last 24 hours what'd you do I give you a little worksheet you know for this 15 minutes what'd you do for this one what'd you do who are you with etc and then I can just kind of make categories for how you spent your day you know so eight hours of sleep you know some things are kind of regular. And then we can look to see how the different things you spend your time on relate to your happiness. Just not causally, just very simple correlationally. If I have a whole bunch of buckets of time and then I ask you how happy you are, are any of those related to your happiness? And when we look at millionaires versus, let's say, regular folks, um, they look startlingly similar. So it's not as though millionaires are on a you know beach. All day, every day, like having whatever pina colada or whatever millionaires drink. They they work, you know, they exercise, they spend time with family. The, the numbers are actually quite similar over the course of the day. The only place that we found real differences are on how people spend their leisure time. That's it. At least in the research we did, that's the only difference we found. And the big difference is re- regular people um, spend more time on passive leisure, which is like, Um, watching TV. Um, One of them is doing nothing. You can say I was doing nothing, which happens for me a lot. Millionaires spend more time on active leisure, which is exercising and hobbies and volunteering. And active leisure positively predicts happiness and passive leisure negatively predicts happiness. So part of the, not all, but part of the reason millionaires are happier is because they do more of the kind of leisure that leads to happiness than the rest of us. The problem with that is the reason that r- regular folks don't do active leisure is because their jobs are hard. So if you're on your feet for eight hours at your job, you don't come home and go for a 25 mile bike ride. You can't, you're done. You know Your job is physically demanding. If you're a millionaire, it's true that you're working, but you're probably sitting around on Zoom and so at the end of the day you want to stretch your legs <laughs> so you can go on you know a 25 mile bike ride so it's it's the, the what the money really does is it allows you the luxury of engaging in the kind of leisure that will make you happier because sometimes people think oh i see like low income people should just get out there and exercise like they think that's the takeaway and it's absolutely not it's that their jobs are so demanding that it doesn't allow them to do the kinds of things that millionaires still have the energy to do after their subjectively stressful but objectively pretty laid back day
0: gotcha and one of on this connection between time and money one of the recommendations is in the book is to buy time so yeah you said sure millionaires and regular folks have similar amount of time but there is something we can do and that's use our money To save time. So how would you recommend maybe somebody like myself who is not in the top earning bracket uh, as a new grad? So how would you recommend folks spend money to save time? Or if that's even a recommendation at all?
1: For sure. So that my colleague um, at HBS, Ashley Willans, um, who has a super cool book, Time Smart, um, you should read. Uh, she is the expert in time management and buying time. And there's two ways to think about buying time. One is you could actually try to buy time. Like you could, if you have kids, you could try once a month to have a babysitter for even an hour. So you and your partner can go spend some time together, but you know, people are income constrained. So it's not, you know, you should have a live in Butler would be great. It would save you a lot of time, but most people can't. But the other way to think about it, that I think is for all of us, is when you spend money, is it improving your time? And a lot of the time, it's not actually improving your time all that much. So if you buy super fancy car versus regular car, you're thinking, oh, it's gonna my time will be amazing because I'll be like with fancy cars. The ads are always going around a mountain super fast kind of thing, you know? Yeah that's not what you do in a fancy car, right? You drive, you got to drive to work too. So you're still in traffic. So it's like nice car and traffic is better than not nice car and traffic. Still but it's sucks. the traffic that, that matters, right? So we're thinking this is going to buy me amazing time to get this fancy car. So let me spend four times as much. And it turns out it's it's probably not going to get us as much as we thought. So we're we're actually wasting money on time. And instead, you can think about wait a minute, if I'm going to, if I need to buy something, let me buy the thing that actually will maximize the payoff in better time for myself.
0: So, are there any best practices maybe you could leave the audience with as to how to go about that?
1: I would specifically map it out. So, if you're going to buy something, yeah, if you're going to buy that or that. Think about what's going to happen. So uh, there's research on pets, for example. So what's a better pet, a goldfish or a dog? People have very strong opinions for some reason, but you can see the logic of both, right? A goldfish is easy, doesn't require much, dog requires a lot of work. But so you could say, oh, goldfish, less time, better pet. But it turns out that dogs do other stuff. So one of the things they do is they have to go for a walk which means we have to take them for a walk, which means we commit ourselves to exercise. The other thing that dogs do is they are super into other dogs. (laughs) So when they see another dog, they go to the other dog. And at the end of that other dog's leash is another person. And now I get to chat with someone a little bit in a friendly conversation, maybe even make a friend. So it's true that dogs are more work. They take more time, but they also change our time in good ways at the same time. And so you're, whereas goldfish Nobody makes new friends for <laughs> goldfish running into each other. Nope. So, so you can see how it's not the, you might think it's the like time spent on care, but it's not, it's the time, how it changes the time in your life that really you need to map out when you make these decisions. And we don't always know, of course, but you know, you, you try to do your best.
0: So how does the purchase impact what I'm going to be doing with my time? Not just the fact that it's freeing it up for, for open, potentially doing nothing. <laughs> if,
1: you're, if you're buying like a killer flat screen, huge TV, and you say it's because you're going to watch like enriching programming, you're not. You're going to watch garbage like all of us. So don't pretend that your time is... Understand what it's really going to do to your time before you get the whatever it is that you're buying.
0: That's awesome. And another one of the recommendations is to spend money on experiences and not that big... 75 inch flat screen TV. But I mean, I was even talking about your book with a friend of mine and they're like, well, do these experiences have to be big? Like I'm not going to just like go travel the world on this, on this budget. Does the research kind of have an answer to that question on like the size of the experience?
1: It's a great question. And I, and it's really important because sometimes it feels like our secret tips are only for billionaires, <laughs> you know? Like uh, what you should do is buy a trip to the moon. It will be amazing. And it's like, well, yeah, but I can't. I think um, in that research, which is um, Tom Gilovich and his colleagues, they specifically focus on the mundane stuff of life. The, you know, $20 lunch, $10 lunch, whatever it might be, ramen, but it's with your friend instead of buying yourself another stupid thing. Those little ones, those daily ones, those small experiences Are they don't maybe they're not as amazing as the moon, but they're still better than buying yourself another thing that costs you 10 or 20 dollars most of the time.
0: Okay, that's especially reassuring. And I I think I'll take that one to heart. And I should feel good about the $10 bucket of balls that I buy at the driving range with a buddy, you know, as opposed to definitely there's no way I'm buying anything useful with 10 bucks. But, um, This is, uh, to take this one home of kind of a, sometimes a fun question I ask people at the end and I thought no better person to ask than you yourself. Do you have a favorite purchase that you've made of late for, you pick the number, but like under a hundred dollars or so that's most positively impacted your life?
1: The thing that came to mind was, um, for my birthday, my I have a five-year-old daughter. My daughter and my wife had heard me say at some point that I wanted a mandolin. I play the guitar. I don't, I don't play particularly well, but I play the guitar. And I said, somehow, I wanted a mandolin. And now I see your guitar. There you go in the background. Do you play well?
0: I play well for myself to sing along. I play yeah. enthusiastically. <laughs> me
1: too. I'm really good at playing those open chords. <laughs> yeah, those are good. So they heard me say that they got me this mandolin and now I can with my daughter. It's fun because she got me, she didn't, she's five, she didn't buy it, but she feels like she got me the mandolin. And so if we play it together, it's amazing for her and for me because it's like this connecting and it's a very not high end mandolin, let's say, but it doesn't matter, right? It's this idea of this kind of emotional caring connection.
0: That's a awesome answer and goes right back to a purchase that, directly impacts how you spend your time so yeah last question i just want to ask if there's any final thoughts you want to leave us with or pass along to me or the audience
1: that's a, that's a good question um i you know since we were talking about rites of passage and identity i think sometimes we end up in an identity by accident like If you ask people why they ended up doing their job, sometimes they'll say, well, my third grade teacher said I was good at math. And that's why I'm a mathematician now. And sometimes that's amazing. And sometimes someone told us we were good at something and we're human and that felt good. (laughs) So then we kept doing that thing. And then when we're 61 years old, we say, I don't even like math. And so I think thinking of the path dependence of your identities and considering, is this the path? you know that I actually want to be on and if not can I move things around the margins or you know rethink if if I'm living my values if I'm living my time the way I want to spend it it's painful to do so none of us ever do it but i think it's a useful exercise
0: can't think of a better way to wrap this up thank you so much for being so thoughtful and enthusiastic in your <laughs> answers and yeah helping me better understand both rituals and money. I know it was ambitious to to cover both, but that was a lot of fun for me. Hopefully, it was for you too. And I'll link everything in the show notes for people to to dive even deeper. So, thank you. Thanks, Chris. That was super fun for me too. Hey, everybody. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I really appreciate you making it this far and hope you enjoyed that one. As always, you can find links to everything we discussed, show notes, and a lot more like my favorite reads and random writing on my website at chrismagrory.net. That's C-H-R-I-S-M-C-G-R-O-R-Y.net. Thanks so much and see you next time.